everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Chalkboard. I'm Katie, and this is a space where we aim to build community among faculty and educators, inspire innovation, and share new technology-based teaching strategies. Thanks so much for tuning in. On episode five of Beyond the Chalkboard, I met with Dr. Gordon Cobb, a composer and sound designer who has had many years of experience in the music industry and currently teaches music technology for Kwantlen Polytechnic University. You don't want to miss this dynamic conversation on how technology has been a major catalyst for many of Gordon's own creative ideas and how he has integrated technology into the music courses he currently teaches. He also shares part of his incredible philosophy of teaching the 21st century learner. We start off by learning a bit more about Gordon's experience and background. My background is um, I was a classical pianist. Um, I came from a, a classical home. My mom was a piano teacher, so it was sort of second nature for me to get into piano. But in the 1980s, I um, discovered <laughs> uh, technology and electronic music. It was like the height of of uh, techno pop and electro techno pop and I wanted to apply the music I was learning in some way and so my parents actually bought me my first uh, electronic instruments so it was like old school sequencers and old school drum machines um, the kind of gear that gets referenced a lot in hip-hop music now like the TR-505 and um, you know, different kinds of big, gigantic synthesizers. And it was sort of my first creative outlet. And it was with technology because that was the language I wanted to speak. I didn't mm -hmm. want to speak classical piano. I wanted to write pop music and, and write techno music and be a techno musician and go to raves and be famous. And um, so that's kind of where it started. But then when I uh, decided to go to university, I shopped around and I um, checked out UBC and I checked out SFU and SFU had an electroacoustics program and UBC told me that electronic music wasn't real music. So I decided to go where um, it seemed like would be the best fit for me and that was SFU and that's where I became an artist and learned how to take electronic music and turn it into an art form and I emerged from that program a composer and uh, headed off to England to go do a, a, a quick one-year intensive master's degree in composition for new media mm -hmm. and thought that I would end up in the tech sector living in San Francisco making a million dollars but of course that was the year 1999 and that's when the dot-com crash happened mm -hmm. and suddenly there was no career so I just took to the stage I connected with all of my friends from uh, the my undergraduate years and met up with dancers and we would just put a show on stage and the way that I was able to get music to these choreographers was through my computer and a cheap hundred dollar microphone that I got for Christmas from my parents and so um, I would just grab like every piece of pottery and I was living with Emily Carr students one was a potterer and so I would just get her to bring home tons of pottery and we had wine glasses and chopsticks from the dollar store and I just started making music with what I had, which was like an okay Mac computer and a hundred dollar mic. And out of that, um, basically started a career as a composer and a sound designer for dance companies and for filmmakers. And that's what I did for a long time. And I taught music as well. 
and eventually I needed more, so I went and did a PhD in arts education at SFU. And uh, at you know somewhere along the way, I started. I picked up a camera and started doing photography, and then I started doing videography, and then I started making videos with kids, and I started a kids production company, and started making music videos and zombie films and all of that stuff to make money during the school year when the kids weren't in school and I wasn't teaching. So, you know, summertime and Christmas break and spring break, it was a way to make a couple hundred bucks. Sometimes a couple thousand dollars Mm -hmm. was to grab the gear I had at home and come up with an idea, propose it to the parents. I was like a true entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. basically creating work for myself using technology. So Mm -hmm. it's my whole career has has basically, the, the technology has been the catalyst. But it's the technology isn't what has made the career happen for me. My ideas have made the career happen for me and my ability to uh, be productive and, and to work hard and to um, conceptualize and be practical. But the technology is uh, were the tools that allowed me to realize my ideas. And so when I did the PhD, I finished that off and ended up here at KPU. So... That's a long, a long <laughs> story that, that brings you to sort of where I am now, which is uh, the KPU music department where I, um, I guess I was hired about three years ago to come in and redesign the music technology program here. And not from the point of view of audio engineering, but from the point of view of application for education and application for creative endeavors. So how do we take our music students who are studying a classical conservatory model and they got a lot of chops and they got a lot of technique, how do we give them other kinds of careers outside of the realm of performance using a laptop and a $100 mic? So, you know, really I was <laughs> I was a perfect person because I've had 30 jobs mm-hmm. over the years where I just used my home computer to do sound design, to work with ice skaters, to make music for outdoor performances, pieces. I've had pieces in the Olympics. I've um, worked with all sorts of dance companies. Mm-hmm. I've made like wallpaper music for corporate films and I've made like funeral films with music for for friends and family you know like 300 bucks by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know there's there's a lot of ways that you can make a living and pay off your student loans and get a mortgage working as a self-employed artist if you have a, a basic grasp of of technology so this is the mindset that i bring to kpu we have a great music program but the the i guess the primary focus for our students is teaching them how to be really, really good performers. Uh, And then there's a bit of an angle um, that leans towards education as well. But of course, you know, I'm a prime example of how uh, not being a performer, but being a creative person can lead to a very lucrative career because there's an industry out there that's just waiting for good musicians who know how to use tech. They're just, the jobs are just sitting there. So um, what I do is a very pragmatic approach to teaching music tech. It's like, um, I'm going to show you how to take your ideas and flush them out and record them. And then we're going to make a music video. We're going to build you a website and we're going to get you a YouTube channel and you're going to put your stuff on Spotify and we're going to get you a passive income. It might be two cents, 
but it's a start and it's a good way for you to connect with audiences online and to develop a fan base that's in Iceland, in Portugal, and uh, and just, you know, get people to, to watch what you do and listen to your music and love what you do. You don't have to wait for a stage. You just create one. No, technology is the huge platform that you can build your fan base and build um, followers from all around the world, which is something that I love. Yeah. Well, I mean, the music industry has really changed in that technology has, I mean, it's changed everything. First of all, it's changed the way that we consume music. So we used to go to a store and we would buy a CD. So if you were an up and coming musician, you had to get in, you had to get uh, signed by a label and then they basically owned all your music, but they would pay to have it recorded in a million dollar studio and then they would pay to have it pressed and released and they would distribute it to you know a and b sound or whoever and then you would go as a 14 year old and buy that tiffany cd and go home and play it a million times well then you know computers and and the internet happened and suddenly people were like stealing and pirating all the music and all the music stores closed down and then itunes figured out how to make it really easy for people to buy music and so then artists started to make some money back and now we're in the age of of uh, Spotify mm-hmm. where you basically rent music but the artists get paid a fraction of what they would get paid for a, an online purchase in iTunes. So, you know, that's just one way that technology has changed, but in there's there's some positive ways that it's impacted musicians in that you don't need the label anymore. You can record at home in your basement with your friends. You don't need an agent because you can book your gigs online through your website. Mm -hmm. You don't need even a film company because you can pull out your iPhone and you can probably film something that looks pretty decent and then edit it on the, you know, I don't know, iMovie, even though iMovie is horrible, but maybe Final Cut Pro, something simple. It costs 300 bucks for Final Cut Pro. It used to cost $2,000. And you can basically launch your career online. But again, the technology doesn't do the work for you. You still have to have the ideas, the talent, and the chops, and the skills, and the technique. So let's talk about some of the programs that you've actually taught at at KPU and those students that you teach. So I know we've talked a little bit about uh, your first year, you've got a third year course and a fourth year course that involve a lot of technology with your music. And so tell me about some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome with integrating that technology piece, because it sounds to me like you have been integrating technology into your music and your career very early on. Yeah. So tell me about how that looks differently now when you have these 21st century students coming into your classroom. Are there any challenges or obstacles you have to overcome with that teaching that technology and teaching that vision? Mm. Well, I think um, the first obstacle was uh, the music faculty because I didn't want to be the outsider who came in with a snide look on my face saying, I know how to do this better than you because Mm. that's not who I am. And because at at my core, I'm still a classical musician. Uh, So I had to come up with a plan to 
embed myself into the music program in a way that would endear me to them. And, and it occurred to me that it's not about redesigning the wheel. It's about just like maybe building it with a better aluminum. So my whole point of view is study the curriculum the way it is now and find all the things that are working. It's like an appreciative inquiry kind of model, yes. right? And so what I did is I thought, well, where where can I enhance what's already here? And uh, they had a couple of music tech courses that hadn't run in a while. And also I have a background in uh, music video production. And so I essentially designed a space for me in the program such that it would complement and enhance the courses that were already there. And then I explained it to the existing faculty that you can take a first year theory course and learn how to start to use the language of music and bring that directly into the music tech course, learn how to make a score and learn how to compose using that grammar that you've just been taught, learn how to use that in GarageBand to start composing a song. So it's not about this is software and I'm gonna just teach you how to use software. I'm gonna actually teach you how to use what you already know and just realize it in a different way. So the technology essentially extends the meaning making potential of the previously existing knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then that just carries through. And then the courses lead into um, history classes or into uh, upper level theory courses or um, pop theory courses, uh, songwriting classes. And so students, once they start to understand that the music tech courses are there to help them to take their assignments and turn them into products, that's when the magic happens. And then eventually that all culminates in the fourth year course that I brought to the university, which is music video production. And then the songs and the, the compositions that they've been creating over their first three years, they can take those recordings, hopefully they've made recordings by that point, um, and they can turn them into music videos. So there's a, there's a direct, um, there's a chronology. Uh, I have a very type A linear mind, and, and so I just looked at the music program as a four-year journey and then I just put myself in, fit myself in to different parts of that journey so that it would just add more depth and make it more holistic. And so when you're talking about these students, so they came in in first year, and do they have any prior knowledge to using the technology to perform or to develop their music? It's a mixed bag. Um, Technology is funny that way because we live in the age of the internet and because we're dealing with digital natives, um, a lot of them have already taught themselves how to do things online. And so my job is to facilitate growth for everybody. So the way that, um, so for example, you know, the assessment model that I use is, is different from say a history class. Uh, because in a history class, you're learning facts and you're basically just thinking critically and, and expressing those facts through a different lens. But in a music tech course, you're creating art, you're creating music. And so you can't judge that with, with a subjective lens. It has to be objective because I can't bring my bias into it. Ethically, I have a problem marking people's art. And mm. a number of us faculty members who teach the 
the sort of quote-unquote creative classes, we have a, a problem trying to quantify art in a good or bad way. Mm-hmm. So it becomes about the skills. And so I compare every student to themselves. So I don't... Um, there's no bell curve. I'm not comparing, you know, student A to student G because student A might already have a whole bunch of music tech experience. And I figure that out in the first assignment. So the first assignment basically gives me an opportunity to see what people already know. Now they don't know that that's what it's for. And then I use that as the departure point for that individual learner to track their progress through. Mm. So um, the way that I design the curriculum is is it's emergent so I start with a framework but depending on who's taking the course it might I might deliver the assignments differently or have different expectations or even use a, a different medium or I might even drop one of the assignments and add something else it depends who they are so because that's what's best for them so and you're just talking about each student has maybe a different set of assignments based on your understanding from that first initial assignment or there's some choice kind of i might redesign the curriculum based on that group of students so if i'm teaching the course on the langley campus which is going to have a lot of music students then there might be more courses where they have to actually write music, like, you know, sections and use chords and that sort of thing. But if I'm teaching it on the Richmond campus um, with predominantly uh, international students, um, and a lot of whom don't play an instrument, don't have background in music, have never done music technology before, I'm going to make it less about composing music on a keyboard and more about composing music with loops or other pre-existing forms of music tech that doesn't require you to know how to play an instrument. It's very flexible. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's flexible because I choose to be flexible. Um, so it's it's good that way. And every class is different, and the outcome of every class is different. I just love the fact that you are taking and assessing what they know and what their current expertise is, and then you're adjusting the course to, mi- to make it meaningful for them. Yes. Well, and that's the privilege of working at an institution like KPU where we have a cap on class sizes Mm -hmm. because you can actually develop a relationship with every student and create a sense of community and connect with them and create a safe place for them to experiment and try new things and whatnot. So, you know, it's, um, it's a, it's a, in some ways it can be more work, but I think the payoff or the outcome uh, makes it worthwhile for me. You have a music department Facebook page, and the first thing that kind of comes to it, it says, become a 21st century musician. I love that. Where did you get that from? Yeah, well, I guess I, I it's partially autobiographical. I, can, I mean, I'm 46, but I feel like I speak the language of the youth. Um, you know, I'm a... I'm a dinosaur with a Spotify account. Um, <laughs> it, it's uh, I've worked at the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music for the last 17 years with like you know at-risk youth and and whatnot. I, I teach technology there, so mm-hmm. I'm with young people and I use their technology and I learn from them because I'm open to it. So a 21st century musician is is me. It's what I've had to do. 
I've had to learn how to build a web page. I've had to learn how to use software. I've had to learn how to use lynda.com to teach myself how to use like 20 different pieces of software from Photoshop to Microsoft Excel to Final Cut Pro. And then every time those people release a new version of the software, you have to go back because they change the architecture and then you have to upgrade. So, you know, those are what I consider to be uh, new musical literacies. And essentially, do you know how to use a camera? Can you pick up a DSLR camera? And do you know what Aperture is? Can you like quickly make a video and throw it online? Do you know how to build a website? Do you have a YouTube channel? Do you even know what that is? Do you have a Gmail or are you still on Hotmail? Um, These are all the things that I've had to do as a composer, entrepreneur, music artist, educator to essentially survive in this like ever-changing music industry that seems to reinvent itself every five years. So this is what I mean about become a 21st century learner is, is take what you already know and then just filter it through the 21st century and I'm going to show you what I know, but I also know that you're going to tell me a whole bunch of stuff that I don't know and I'm just going to incorporate that into the next iteration of my class. And that's how I keep up is like I ask questions. I don't feel like I'm the gatekeeper of knowledge. I know that I can't know everything, so I crowdsource in my classes. Like sometimes I'll be giving a demonstration and it'll be on a different computer that has a different version of the software and I'll get stuck because like a certain button or function is now somewhere else. And instead of getting fickle about it or seeing it as like, oh, I'm going to look really bad in front of my students, I just have a great time. I'm like, okay, uh, let's figure this out together. And I just empower the students. And 100% of the time, there's always somebody who knows. And then it becomes like, we're solving this together. And isn't this fun? It's like, I just like take the pressure off myself to have to know everything. I absolutely love this philosophy. Like you're just preaching right now. I just, it's, it's amazing. Actually, <laughs> I, I, I'm just beaming. You, you'll see me. I'm just smiling because this is such a cool philosophy to have in your classroom. And I think this actually, um, it, it's a great segue into my next question because what are some of your thoughts or if you were going to talk to somebody about integrating technology into their classroom as a faculty member what would you recommend the how do they start because like you said technology is changing every day and it's not just in music it's in every kind of discipline that you could ever imagine for example like my nursing they're innovation and technology is at the forefront in healthcare. So if you were going to give a piece of advice or some uh, some recommendations from your own experience, what do you what would you suggest? Yeah, I mean that's such a good question because I think that you know, in learning institutions right now there is a desire to incorporate technology, but there's also a lot of fear around it, right? Because uh you don't, at the end of the day, you don't want to look dumb in front of your students. That's that's the, the driving force that makes us do all sorts of weird things like dig in our heels and not change. But you just have to, you have to just see things from a different point of view. You have to allow yourself 
to experiment and to fail. You have to find out what resources are available to you at your university, like the teaching and learning commons at KPU, and come up there and just like say, oh, I I just don't know what to do. I want to try this. I teach math and I want to make it fun and interactive. And I'm using the same textbook I was using in 1978. So, you know, help me. Someone will probably give you a hand or direct you to a resource. And then you just have to allow yourself the space and the time to take it on. It's like you can't learn how to play cello in a day. Mm. But you can go out and buy a cello and you can learn where to put your fingers. And you're going to make mistakes. But the more you use that cello and the more you practice, the better you're going to get. So for people who are new to technology, you have to make it fun. And you need to like have a sense of humor about it. Mm-hmm. And then you need to make it part of your class. And you need to tell your students, all right, I'm trying this out. I'm probably going to be really bad at it. But that's okay. We're going to have fun with it. And then you let yourself off the hook. Yeah, I really think that students are kind about that. If you're upfront with them sure. about that you're using, you're trying a new thing, they're very receptive to that. It's an invitation to your students to be to have agency in your class. It's like you suddenly have a voice and you might have expertise in something that your instructor is struggling with and suddenly you get to give something back, mm-hmm. right? There's a whole peer-to-peer learning model that doesn't have to exist just with your students. You can be part of that relationship too. And so for me, as somebody who um, teaches a lot of tech out of necessity, I don't set myself up for failure by you know, feeling like I have to have all the answers. There's been times in some of my classes where, you know, we come in and we, you know, grab some gear and we've got these computers, we haven't connected them before and there isn't a driver and it's like, oh my God, what do we do? Okay, stop, everybody stop. We're gonna figure this out together. Everybody grab a computer, you guys are gonna Google search this and, you know, Let's give ourselves a half an hour and see if we can figure this out. Usually you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say a computer, but of course the students are on their phones and they, they figure it out and we figure it out. And then it's like you've done it together. And that's just the mindset that you have to have. And then you learn how to take one math assignment and turn it into an interactive page. And then you've done one. And then you try another one. And maybe you try something a little bit different. And that can be over, not just in one semester or one course, that can be over a couple semesters. You don't yeah. have to go crazy. It can be over five years. So you could slowly be redesigning one course over a number of years, and eventually it becomes something new. You know, if you're going to teach for 30 years, five years is nothing. Mm-hmm. And then you need to ask questions, and you need to go to workshops, and you need to go to lynda.com. <laughs> We will definitely put that in the podcast notes because if you have a library card, you can go to lynda.com. It's so good. And if you don't have a library card, you can go to the library and that is a really great recommendation. Yeah. I just learned about this last week. Ah, (laughs) okay. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, um, sometimes you get it through the university Mm. that you go to, so I get it free through SFU. Okay. Um, KPU hasn't 
hasn't got that sorted out yet for our students, but I mean, you can just get it through the, the Langley yeah, or Public, Surrey Library, Public Library or Surrey. Yeah. As yeah. long as you have a library card, I'm pretty sure you can have access to that, which is excellent. Yeah. There's a ton of resources on there. Yeah. But there's no teacher, right? Mm. There's no person. Mm-hmm. So even though they're brilliantly produced videos and they're really well written, you can't ask it a question mm. and it can't look at your assignment and it can't listen to your piece of music. Mm. So fortunately, you and I haven't become completely irrelevant yet. Job security. Job security <laughs> until robots are doing it for us. Yeah. Alas. Thank you so much, Gordon, for coming here and chatting with your experience in music and technology. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I could talk about this all day. Yeah, you and I both. (laughs) (laughs) It was an absolute joy to chat with you, Gordon. Thanks again for taking the time to talk with me about some of your experiences in teaching with technology. One of the comments that really resonated with me from Gordon is how he chooses to be a flexible educator. I mean, this can't be easy, especially with rigorous course outlines and courses that are challenging to fit in all the content, but maybe walking a mile in a 21st century learner's shoes could be beneficial to help us have more of a balanced perspective of what our students need. As Gordon mentioned, I too believe there's a desire to reach our students and create meaningful learning for them. However, sometimes the fear of something not going smoothly, or perhaps not having all the answers, is overwhelming. That's where the teaching and learning comments can come in and help, but also the community of educators and faculty that we have, even within our five campuses at KPU. Let's create a desire that is greater than fear, so we can be education leaders of teaching and innovation who bring meaningful learning to our students in every classroom. Thanks again for listening. I do have one more thing to say. I get the privilege of sharing some exciting news. Dr. Gordon Cobb will actually be your new host for Beyond the Chalkboard. He is the new teaching and learning education consultant for teaching with technology and is going to continue the podcast speaking to educators and faculty members about what they're doing differently in their classroom and what other innovative approaches they might have. I just want to take a moment to thank all of the people who consulted, who helped set me up and helped make my vision for this podcast become a reality. I couldn't have done it without you. If you have any comments or feedback to help make this podcast better, I highly recommend you email us at tlcommons at kpu.ca. And thanks again for your support and listening. I'm Katie Kozlowski, and this is Beyond the Chalkboard.